This morning we're going to carry on with our study. Uh, kind of a, really, it's a, a two-part study, but we're going to tag an extra one on the end. Um, just looking at some of the, the details uh, surrounding the Christmas story, the typical Christmas story that we've often heard, we grew up probably with. Many of us may have had uh, involvement in school nativity plays and so on. Uh, and yet it transpires that much of what we were taught and have been told uh, was not based upon the Bible, but on tradition. And uh, quite where tradition got some of these ideas from uh, is quite bemusing, really. Um, but we're going to carry on this morning with this study, really looking at the, the theme or the topic of why Magi. So last week we were looking at the shepherds. Uh, and in our study last week, we were saying, well, why did God choose the shepherds? And we said, you know, far from being a, a random choice. We noted that the shepherds on the hills around Bethlehem had a very specific job, and that was namely to inspect the lambs that would later be offered in sacrifice just eight miles away up in Jerusalem. And they came to confirm that Jesus indeed was the perfect lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. That's the reason of all the different people that God could have chosen that he chose the shepherds. So with that in mind, we now ask the question, well, all right, why Magi? If the shepherds were specifically chosen and there was a reason for that, then surely the Magi themselves were uh, part of God's intended plan. It wasn't just a random choice. And really, we have to ask the question, why would God choose to send a group of people hundreds of miles from another country? You know, and more to the point, why would a group of people from another country agree to travel hundreds of miles, bring gifts to see a small child? I mean, if you just think about that, it's a really strange scenario. Um, so what was God's plan? What was God's purpose? Why the Magi? Well, we're going to look at the questions this morning. Who were the Magi? What significance did they have? How many of them were there really? Because typically we're told that there was three, aren't we? You know, and why is it that the world believes that there were only three? And typically you'll see on, on Christmas cards and so on. You know, uh, what evidence do we have that they actually visited Bethlehem? Uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, and when did they arrive in Jerusalem? Because that's where they first uh, go to when they come to Israel. And then really uh, quite an interesting question to think about was, why was Herod and all Jerusalem shaken at their arrival? Clearly, this isn't just a, a trivial matter. Um, to us, some 2,000 years later, it may not seem like the, the hot topic of, uh, of debate and conversation, but actually, at that time, the whole of Jerusalem, a major, major city at that time, was shaken and troubled with their arrival. So we need to dig into this and understand a little bit about what was really going on. Now, we've already seen how the truth of Christmas has been obfuscated by tradition, hidden, you know, masked over by tradition. Um, Jesus obviously came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He was born into the town of sacrificial lambs, Bethlehem. And that's why Bethlehem was chosen. And specifically, as Micah had prophesied, it was the tower of the flock, Migdal Eda, where, as Micah says, the first dominion would come. The first visitation of the Messiah would be at that place. And later, that's in chapter 4 of Micah. And chapter 5, he just reiterates and says, yes, it's going to be in Bethlehem. Now, we understand, of course, we've seen this, that he, Jesus was wrapped in swaddling bands. These were the clothes, that the, the old clothes that priests no longer needed or want, wanted. They were being uh, used and they were then used by these shepherds, cut into strips, and they were used to wrap up a lamb so that the lamb didn't damage itself because these lambs had to be without blemish. And, uh, of course, the lambs were then laid in this uh, depression in the rock, this smooth uh, rock that was there, uh, and that place was known as the manger. And so these shepherds, uh, the one, very ones who came, whose job it was to inspect these lambs that were destined for sacrifice in Jerusalem were the ones who came to inspect Jesus as a baby, laying in effectively their manger to acknowledge that, yes, he is the lamb. So when you think of Christmas, you should think of sacrificial lamb. It's not one of those normal kind of connections, but once we start to understand the bigger picture, this is what Christmas is really all about. It's about a sacrificial lamb who was wrapped in swaddling bands, priestly garments, laid in a manger, visited by these shepherds to confirm that he was without blemish. Again, the location, the details, the shepherds themselves all speak of this great truth. 
But of course, that's only half the story. And specifically, it's kind of Luke's half of the story because we have the account in Matthew and we have the account in Luke that both give us the details of uh, Jesus' birth and the events that are surrounding that. So when you think of Christmas, you should also think of the king of the Jews. Now, this is that politically incorrect statement that, as I said earlier, is in all the Christmas carols that we tend to sing. Uh, this reference to Jesus, the king of the Jews, born is the king of Israel, uh, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and all these kind of things, and ransom captive Israel. You know, the, the, the words of these carols, if people actually stopped to listen, they would ban them. Um, but they don't, and we're glad they don't. Uh, they haven't worked it out yet. Um, but we should not only think of sacrificial lambs at Christmas time, but we should think of the fact that Jesus came to be the king. And these two aspects are summarized for us in a great passage in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Now I've kind of color coded here because this verse speaks of both the lamb and the king. So for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment, and with justice, from henceforth, even for ever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Notice that opening statement. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Why Why say that twice? Well, because it's not saying the same thing twice. You see, unto us a child was born, that Jesus was born in human form for us. But he was the son of God and God gave him to us. So we have both the, the divine and the human all summed up in the opening statement. And then the statement that the government shall be on his shoulder. God's plan was always that Jesus would one day rule and reign over the entire earth, that everything will be subject to him, that his name should be called wonderful and counselor. And really those are in connection to the, the lamb element in a sense that Jesus came to give his life for us so that we would have a counselor. And because of that, we know he is wonderful. But then combined with that, the statement, the mighty God, the everlasting father, speaking of his eternity, speaking of his great authority, the prince of peace. Of course, we can only have peace because of what Christ accomplished on the cross for us of the increase of his government, which is to come. And peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David. And this is the great promise that we have in Luke chapter 2. Uh, and it's often overlooked by so many when they look at scripture. Uh, we have this statement. Uh, sorry, apologies. It's actually Luke chapter 1 um, and verse 32. And it says, He shall be great and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That's the words of Gabriel speaking to Mary. This declaration that the child that she was going to bear, that she was going to deliver, would be God manifest in the flesh. And that he was going to sit on David's throne. That's a nationalistic Jewish throne. And yet that was the, the statement that was given uh, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. Of course, you know, that judgment can only be possible and justice can only be possible because of the shed blood of Jesus, because he has made a way for those who put their trust in him to have their sins forgiven. And that is why God can still be just, because the punishment that we deserved was put upon his son. And we're told it's from henceforth, even forever. And it's the zeal of the Lord that's going to confirm and perform it now interestingly we have a wonderful model in advance of all of this because as a forerunner to christ we have this individual that comes up in genesis 14 and in uh, the book of hebrews a number of times his character melchizedek now he was part of a line of kings and priests ruling and reigning in jerusalem for a period of a thousand years now melchizedek didn't live that long from what we understand but there was a, a line of kings and priests for a thousand years ruling in jerusalem from the time following the flood and it was a forerunner of what is to come that god will allow him or set up a kingdom for his son to rule and reign over the earth for a period of a thousand years of course god has always intended a monarchy for the nation of israel but had stated in Hosea 13.10, I will be their king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And the judges of whom thou sayest, give me a king 
and princes. See, God makes a statement that he is to be their king. Now, yes, the monarchy was established and this was part of God's plan, but it was always looking forward to Jesus coming and sitting on that throne. Now, of course, Israel were not to be like the other nations. We read in Numbers 23. Now, this is the prophecy of Balaam. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Interesting statement, isn't it? That God looks at Israel and says, I don't see sin. Uh, You know, the only way that's possible is because of his grace, because sin has been dealt with because of the sacrificial system that was established at Sinai, concluded in Christ. Neither has has he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord, his God is with him and the shout of a king is among them. I mean, it's a statement already way ahead of time. Balaam making this, this promise. This was before Israel had a king. But it's saying this is a nation that will be led by a king. The shadow of a king is among them. And God brought them out of Egypt, as it were, with the strength of a unicorn. By the way, when you read unicorns in the Bible, don't think of some white horse with a pretty rainbow kind of horn and tails and things. Uh, that's uh, the mythology that somehow uh, come from that. Unicorns in scripture are spoken of as being really strong beasts. Uh, and I suspect, looking at the description we have in, in the Bible, uh, that these were some sort of uh, dinosaur um, or some equivalent to it uh, early on. Surely there's no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any uh, divination against Israel according to this time it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, what has God wrought? So, <clears throat> not content to be without a visible king, Israel jumped the gun. As I'm sure you're aware, the children have been going through it recently in their Sunday school uh, lessons. And uh, they have, point, of course, appointed Saul as king. But that ended in failure. See, man's government will always be lacking at best and tyrannical at worst. Then, in God's time, he appointed a king. That king, of course, was David, uh, as a model, as a forerunner of his ultimate plan to rule over his people himself. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a really important chapter of the Bible, they're all important, but that one really specifically stands out because it speaks of this coming kingdom and that it will be eternal. In fact, seven times in that passage, it states that the throne of David it will be an eternal throne. It will go on forever. And of course, that's not possible from a human perspective, but through the Messiah, that will be accomplished. Now, also in the book of Daniel, Daniel foretells the coming of this kingdom and says it's going to be an everlasting dominion that Jesus will rule over the whole earth. He'll put down all rule, authority and power. Everything will become the kingdom or under the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So let's just uh, have a quick refresh, if we can, at the monarchy of Israel, the kingdom, the th- crown, the throne. Now, David was the first real king, the one that God had always intended. There's incredible prophecy hidden back in Genesis 39 that speaks of David being the one who is going to be the king of Israel. So Saul, again, as we said, was the one that Israel jumped the gun. That was never going to work. Um, But the, the king was to come through the line of Judah from the house of David. And Matthew, in his uh, genealogy, in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, gives us this account. And it's interesting, Matthew focuses on Jesus as the king. And this is why Matthew gives us this genealogy, coming down through Solomon, and then through Solomon's son, through Rehoboam, and then obviously down through that list. Now, you'll notice there, there's some ones that are grayed out. I'll mention those in a second. Um, then we get, for, for after Josiah, do you have a, a, a number of kings there? Jehoiakim, the next one on, the reverse one in red you can see on the screen. Interestingly, a prophecy was given regarding Jehoiakim because of his iniquity that none of his sons would sit on the throne. Now, this is quite interesting because if you go down that line all the way, you realize that Joseph, as in the legal father of Jesus, Joseph was of that line. And yet the statement is there, clearly given, that because of Jehoiakim's sin, none of his descendants would be able to sit on the throne. And almost you, you, you can imagine in the councils of hell them rejoicing at that statement, thinking, well, God has shot himself in the foot because now there can't be a king in the line of David. 
Well, of course, God had a bigger plan, a bigger picture. That verse from Jeremiah twenty-two thirty. Thus says the Lord, write ye this man childless. He did have children, but it's account them as if they don't exist. A man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. How do we get round this dilemma? If Jesus is to sit on the throne of David, and yet this prophecy has been given to say that there will be no king of that line, and Joseph is of that line, what's the solution? Well, of course, in Scripture, we have the Gospel of Luke as well. Luke gives us the genealogy from a different perspective, not coming through Solomon, but coming through Nathan, the second surviving son of Bathsheba. Solomon being the first surviving son, and then Nathan after that. And so this line comes all the way down, but you'll notice that that line goes all the way down to a man called Heli, who has a daughter called Mary. Now, what's interesting in all of this is the relationship between Heli and Joseph, who, of course, Mary marries. You know, we've said before that every detail, even the regulations that are given in the Torah and the the law, they're all there by deliberate design and they always point to Christ. Now, I believe it was C.I. Schofield who many years ago pointed out this incredible little nugget hidden back in the book of Numbers. And it's regarding a man called Zelophehad. Zelophehad was a man who had five daughters. Uh, and this is given to us in Numbers chapter 27. The oldest of his daughters was a young lady by the name of Marla. And yes, that's where we got the name for our firstborn as well. Um, but this peculiar exception is recorded there in Numbers 27. And what happens is that because Zelophehad doesn't have any sons, the daughters, led by Marla, go to Moses and they present this request. And they basically say, look, because we don't have, there's no son, we don't want to lose out on our inheritance, on that which we would have, which is, was our father's. We don't want it going elsewhere. And so Moses goes to the Lord. It's Moses speaks to God about it. And God comes back and confirms, yes, absolutely grant their request. It's absolutely right. And so it provides for inheritance through the daughter if no sons were available and she married within her same tribe. So you have to be of the tribe of Judah, which, of course, jumping the gun a little bit here. Mary did marry within her tribe. She marries Joseph, who's of the tribe of Judah as well. And we see a number of examples in the Old Testament where this applies. And so it becomes a kind of a traditional thing in such cases that the father of the bride, of the one, who, the, the lady, of his daughter, would then legally adopt his son-in-law. So his son-in-law would become effectively his son. As his son, he would have the right to inherit as well. This is quite fascinating because this uh, request, as I say, was given to Moses in number 27. Joshua then grants it in Joshua 17. And so we see this uh, situation where the husband is adopted by the father of bride. And of course, all of this anticipates the lineage of Christ because of that situation with this blood curse effectively that's put on the line of Jehoiakim or Jeconiah, same character. Joseph, we're told in Luke 3, 23, was the son-in-law of Heli. That's how it's written in the text. But actually, the, the word in the Greek is nomitso, and it means reckoned as by law. So son-in-law is kind of an okay translation, but it's far more than just that. It means he was actually adopted as a legal member of the family. And so because of that, Jesus, from a legal perspective, going down that line, is able to inherit the throne. But from a blood point of view, through through that line coming down through Mary to, or through Heli to Mary, and then Joseph is adopted, also applies. Let's just look at the, the text. Now, Matthew's gospel, as I said, presents Jesus as the king. And so it's interesting that it's in Matthew's gospel that we are introduced to the Magi, who we're going to be going to talk about now. So let's just read from verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together. So it's like, like they're engaged um, before they're married. Uh, the espousal was more than the engagement in the Jewish culture. But uh, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Now, because Joseph knew the threat that was effectively uh, faced by Mary, the reality of the law, that was she could have been executed by ending up becoming pregnant before she was in a married relationship. So... um, 
Joseph then, uh, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife, this is from verse 24, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So Gabriel obviously says to Joseph, no, it's okay, marry her because this child is of the Holy Spirit. There's incredible faith on Joseph's part to trust that God was going to work this out. I mean, we, we face challenges all the time, but this really is. It's a whole story of faith and trust. And uh, we've talked already this morning about fear. You know, perfect love, we're told in Scripture, casts out fear. And these two individuals, Mary and Joseph, they had a love for God. And that love was sufficient to cast out the fear that was rightly there, but it doesn't seem to take hold because they trust God. We go to Matthew chapter 2, and then we read this. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, so clear statement of where Jesus was born, just as we've already confirmed, in the town of sacrificial lambs, we're told, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men. Now, that's our word that we translate, or is, is the, that's the translation of the word which is magi. They came magi from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he? Now, notice where they've gone. They've gone to the palace. They've gone to Herod, who is the, the king, effectively, at that time. Of course they would. They wanted to find the king. Where would you go to find the king? you go to the palace. And they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, you and I may miss the intensity of that, but Herod certainly didn't. Because Herod was not a Jewish king. He was an Idumean from, from the, the uh, family of Edom, Esau's uh, descendants. And he'd been appointed by Rome as the governor of this uh, area, this troublesome area of Israel. And so he wasn't the rightful king of the Jews, and he knew it full well. And so when these magi arrive and they say, where is the one who is the rightful king of the Jews? You can imagine how that makes Herod feel. And they say, for we have seen his star in the east. And I come to worship him. I mean, straight away, this isn't just a, a random statement. They're saying that there's something behind this. It's far more to it. It's a bigger picture. And verse 3, this this really interesting verse. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, this is an incredible statement. The whole of Jerusalem is concerned at the arrival of these magi. So who were they? Where did they come from? Why did they travel so far? How did they even know about this king? How many were there? And why was all Jerusalem troubled? Well, let's just go through some of these things. Now, typically, when you get your Christmas cards, and I'm sure some of you have had it. I've got a few behind me uh, that I've got. Not from any of you, of course. You've been far more discerning than that. Um, but you get Christmas cards, and you find that you have typically three kings on there, and they're riding camels, and they follow the star, and it goes to Bethlehem, and uh, everyone's happy, and we get on with our Christmas dinner. Th that, that, of course, is so far removed from what the Bible tells us. But yet, this is still perpetrated each year by tradition and so on, and everybody just assumes that there were three kings there's the carol of course we three kings uh, and so on well let's try and dispel some of the myths surrounding these uh, characters shall we well there's many things that have been said about them uh, some say they were descendants of ham that had come from north africa others think they were representatives of africa asia and europe um, so in other words being the descendants of ham shem and japheth there were noah's three sons so they uh, the suggestion is they're representative of all of humanity all coming to worship jesus lovely story no biblical basis for it the Eastern, tra Eastern tradition was that there were 12 wise men, interestingly enough. Uh, of course, the church uh, in the early centuries actually split between the Western church and the Eastern. Uh, so you typically have the Eastern Orthodox. Actually, it was about 1000 BC, around about that time frame that they split. Um, but they, they believed there was 12 wise men and they arrived uh, at Christmas, uh, typically on the 6th of January and so on. Uh, it was actually in the third century that it was suggested that these wise men, these magi, were actually kings and they've come bearing gifts. Now, the reason for that, we'll look at it in a second, was because of Psalm 72 and also an allusion in Psalm 68. Of, in Psalm 68, it speaks about dromedaries or camels covering the land. The Western tradition was, again, there was three kings who arrived at Christmas time at Epiphany, again, typically the 6th of January. So these ideas now psalm 72 it says this he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust and this is the kings of tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents the kings of sheba and seba shall offer gifts so 
People said, well, look, we've got a reference there in the Bible to people offering gifts. It must be the same thing. This must be the ones that are referring to. So there must be kings. And so we kind of add two and two together and we get five. Now, the, the problem with that is, of course, that when you look at Psalm 72, the scope of it is the kings of the whole earth. And actually, it's not talking about the time of Jesus' birth. It's talking about the millennial reign of Christ. In fact, we haven't seen that prophecy fulfilled because it's speaking about the kings of the earth bowing down before him. All of the earth, not just a few. And the kings mentioned in that particular portion, interestingly enough, actually come from south of Israel, from Seba, uh, Dedan, that area, um, from north and from the west, but not from the east, which is where the wise men or the magi are said to have come from. So that scripture doesn't apply to this situation. Now, again, it suggested that there were three of these individuals because there's three gifts mentioned, of course, gold, frankincense and myrrh, which are interesting in their own way. Uh, and we're told that they follow the star from the east all the way to a manger in Bethlehem. That's what we're told. That's what tradition has made us believe. And we've even got their names given to us. Uh, we've got uh, Balthazar, Melchor and Casper or, or Gasper. So these individuals uh, in the... Um, about the 7th, 8th century, uh, a man by the name of Bede suggested that the three sons of Noah, we've mentioned that earlier on, and so, and in the 14th century, Armenian tradition again says we had a king of Arabia, a king of Persia, a king of India, and so on. Now, this is incredible. Uh, in the 4th century, there was an archaeological dig in Persia, and they uncovered three skulls that were in a grave together. Well, who else could it possibly be? It had to be these three kings, did it not? Well, that's the story that got propagated. Um, the skulls were cleaned up, and after verifying them, I'm not quite sure how you verify a skull. Uh, this was before they had the ability to do DNA testing, and even if they had, I'm not sure it would have helped them. Um, but the skulls were then brought to Constantinople by Helena. That's the mother of Constantine. Um, she's the same uh, individual, same lady who named for us Mount Sinai in the what is known as the Sinai Peninsula, which was in the wrong place. And she also named a few other things that were also in the wrong place. So that's a good clue that maybe this isn't particularly accurate either. Um, but they eventually become religious relics. They were something that were deemed to be very sacred, very holy, very special. Well, eventually they're transferred to Milan in the 5th century. Um, but after that, uh, the Bishop of Cologne, Bishop Reynold, uh, during a period of great prosperity in Cologne, took a real fancy to these things. He really wanted to have these great relics in his cathedral. Um, so he paid a huge sum of money to get his hands on them from Milan, and he put them in Cologne Cathedral around about 1163, where they can be seen. Well, not actually the skulls, but the tomb in which they are interred uh, can be, is on display to this very day. And that's the outside of the cathedral, a very impressive-looking building. Uh, and that is in the building, that is the tomb where these three skulls uh, apparently are now residing the tomb of the kings so we are told uh on the side of this uh, very ornate um resting place for them there's a picture of the three kings uh giving worship and so on to jesus and uh strangely we have a, a mary who is sat on a throne wearing a crown um so uh, the kind of queen of heaven uh, is as she's pictured there so this is very uh catholic in its uh, depiction of course very very far removed from anything the bible says uh, that's just the end of this uh, very ornate casket that they're in now verse one uh calls them wise men uh matthew's actually more specific than in that in the original text he specifically calls them magi that's the word in the the greek that's translated there uh, and magi interestingly come up time and time again in ancient history the magi were actually given one of them or they were actually one of the most powerful groups of men in the ancient world and of course, they'd have been very well known at that time. So to us, it may seem a bit strange. But at the time of the, the Gospels, at the time of these events took place, the Magi were well known of. They were the priests of media. OK, they were a religious sect, effectively. Uh, and they were renowned for interpreting dreams or telling the future. Of course, they got mixed up uh, with the the science of astronomy and the superstition of astrology. Nothing wrong with astronomy, but obviously be very wary and cautious and avoid astrology. But they started trying to predict the future. Um, so fortune telling, sorcery and so on. And, and any king that was worth his salt would have a group of magi on staff 
to give him advice and to give him some sort of directions to what's going to happen. Now, interestingly, the word magic actually is derived from magi because this ability they had to uh, tell the future seemingly um, but the word also magistrate also comes from the word magi uh, again the, the connotation is that the magi had this power to pronounce judgments and so on uh, so they had this kind of political and religious component to them. Now, as their reputation grew, again, as I said, they were looked for, for advice. And typically any king or government in the East wouldn't be without their team of Magi. And important decisions would first have to be passed by the Magi before any government or any king was happy to move forward. And particularly things such as the appointment of a new king. If one king had died, the Magi would be consulted as to who should be the next king because, again, of this supposed ability to see into the future. Now, they make a number of biblical appearances. Back in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 1, verse 13, we read, Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all the new law and judgment, and it goes on. So the king in Esther consults with these wise men. He had his team of magi. We also find in Daniel chapter 2, uh, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. And then the king commanded all the magicians or magi. OK, so this is one group that he had on staff and the astrologers, another group and the sorcerers, another group and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. And so came and stood before the king. Now, interestingly, the Chaldeans and the Magi seem to be kind of fiercely in competition with each other, both vying for the top spot of being the most trusted advisors and the ones that could uh, foretell the future or give the right accurate information to the king. If you remember, the, the situation in Daniel is quite amusing, that Daniel uh, or, or Nebuchadnezzar dreams this dream and they uh, want, somebody to, want somebody to interpret it. So the Chaldeans decide they're going to try and get one up on the rest of this group. Uh, and they say, well, we'll go first. We'll tell the king what he means. And the king says, great. Uh, and he says, and the Chaldeans then say to the king, uh, OK, king, tell us your dream. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I can't remember it. Which the point the Chaldeans then become very uncomfortable and they wish they let the Magi go first at that point. Because obviously without knowing the dream, they can't just make up some story. They need to know what the dream was. That requires some supernatural intervention. Well, as you know, there was some supernatural intervention because Daniel hears about this. Daniel goes home and he says to his friends in another, what well, has to be a fairly amusing thing as you look back at it. goes, hey guys, I've just with this, you heard this problem. The king's had a dream and unless we interpret it, every one of us is going to have his houses torn down and made a dunghill and so on and we're all going to be killed. And he says, well, I've come up with a great idea. And his friends say to Daniel, what's that, Daniel? And he says, well, I said, we're going to tell the king. And you can imagine his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, all looking around at Daniel going, you did what? But that, of course, leads them to a night of prayer. They get down on their knees and they seek the Lord. And, of course, the Lord reveals to Daniel the answer or the interpretation of the dream. Daniel goes back to speak to Nebuchadnezzar and says, this is your dream. And it's this incredible dream, this uh, um, statue uh, with the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, and you know the rest of it um, from Daniel chapter 2 ultimately culminating in the Messiah, the King of Kings, coming and establishing his kingdom. So this was like the major thing that rises Daniel to prominence in Babylon. This dream, which starts off with Nebuchadnezzar, the king who was there at the time, he was the, the head of gold, but it ends up with a king who's going to rule over the whole earth. Well, interestingly, as a result of this, we're told that Daniel was made a great man and gave him many, and this is Nebuchadnezzar, of course, gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors. And notice this. This is a key point, And over all the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel is actually put in charge of the Magi. Now, this is actually confirmed for us in Jeremiah. I'll give you the reference in a second. In fact, it's Jeremiah 39. So this hereditary Persian king-making religious group are suddenly in a position where they have this Jew placed in charge over them. Jeremiah 39 gives us the title that Daniel became Rab Mag. That doesn't mean anything too much to us, but it means chief of the Magi. That's exactly what it means. Daniel was given this responsibility. Now, 
King Nebuchadnezzar, as a result of this, gives up the worship of Ishtar, which is where we get the name Easter from, uh, and was apparently himself converted. Uh, There's a really interesting section in Daniel chapter 4 that kind of deals with that as well. And so it seems that much happened to the Magi under Daniel's ministry. Uh, in fact, when we get to Daniel chapter 5, verse 7, we find the account of Belshazzar's feast. Uh, do you remember this king that comes onto the sea and he has no regard for the, the God of Israel? And he actually gets the items that were taken from the temple, the cups and the bowls and so on. And they, they start drinking wine and getting drunk with these vessels that have been set aside for worship of the one true God. Now, as a result of this, Daniel eventually is in his old age by this point is called and we have the writing on the wall and so on. But notice at this time, the king calls all the soothsayers and everybody else to come and interpret this. But the Magi are not present. The Magi are no longer seemingly involved in that kind of thing. Daniel seems to have done something with them. And uh, what's fascinating is what comes next. So it seems that many of the Magi carried on as true believers looking for the coming of the Messiah from this time, again, under the influence of Daniel himself. Remember that part of Daniel's interpretation of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was that the king would be coming, though the, the king of kings would rule over the whole earth. Now, in Acts chapter 8, in the New Testament, we see another example of the Magi, or a descendant of that group. Um, we read, but there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. So this individual clearly uh, self-opinionated, but we read, and when they were gone through the Isle of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, uh, a false prophet, a uh, Jew whose name was Bar Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is by interpretation, withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. In both these examples, these are descendants of the Magi. Elymas the sorcerer literally means one of the Magi. So clearly gone off the rails, not following God in the way that Daniel certainly would have uh, encouraged and no doubt instructed. But even by the time, some five, six hundred years later, the time of the Gospels, we have these individuals, descendants of this group, again trying to exercise some spiritual uh, power or ability to foretell the future. Now, a little bit of history for you. Try and bear with me on this because this is really interesting and it kind of makes sense of everything we're going to look at. I'll give you a summary in a minute. So if you don't like history, just bear with me for a second. But this is quite important stuff. Parthia was an ancient empire of Asia, okay, which is where today we find the likes of Iran, Afghanistan and so on. And the Parthians were of Scythian descent. That's kind of the southern uh, areas of Russia today. Uh, and they adopted Median, that's the Medes, dress and Aryan speech. Parthia was subject successively to the Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians and the Macedonians under Alexander the Great. And then finally the Seleucids as well, which is one of the, 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 or the, the sections of uh, Alexander the Great's empire. A really powerful group of people. And it's from this group that the Magi come. In around about 250 BC, the Parthians succeeded in founding an independent kingdom. And during the first century BC, it grew into an empire that extended all the way from the river Euphrates, which is in today's in Iraq by Babylon, uh, to the Indus River uh, in India, of course. Uh, and from the Oxus, now the Amudare River to the Indian Ocean. So a large piece of territory. Now, after the middle of the first century BC, Parthia was thus a rival to Rome. Now, we're all familiar from our history and so on about Rome, but we end up, well, we find that we have this rival faction that we don't tend to hear that much about, which is Parthian Empire. And there was a number of wars that occurred between the two. Now, you can see there on the screen, the Roman Empire. Of course, we all cover that, I'm sure, at school and familiar with that. The Parthian Empire was a large area, which we just mentioned, the geographical boundaries. But right in the middle of that is this effectively a buffer zone, a place that was right on the border of the two, that was constantly a place of wars and struggles and fights. And right in the center of that, of course, was Judea, the land of Israel. Now, Pompey, the first Roman conqueror of Jerusalem in 63 BC, had attacked the Armenian outpost of Parthia. 
few years later, 55 BC, uh, Crassus led Roman legions in sacking Jerusalem and in a subsequent attack on Parthia proper. And the Romans were decisively defeated at a battle known as the Battle of Carhe with a loss of some 300, or sorry, some 30,000 troops, including their commander. And the Parthians counterattacked with the token invasion of Armenia, Syria and Palestine, or to you and I, Israel. So Israel right in the middle of these battles that were going on. Now, nominal Roman rule was established under Antipar. Now, it should be a name that should ring a bell. He was the father of Herod, who in turn retreated before a Parthian invasion in 40 BC. So this this piece of land is going from one side of being Rome, and then the Parthians come in and take it, and then it goes back the other way. It's constant to and fro in. Another name you might know from history, Mark Antony, of Antony and Cleopatra, uh, re-established Roman sovereignty just a few years later, in three years later, in 37 BC. And like Crassus, before him, he also embarked on a similarly ill-fated Parthian expedition. And it actually led to a very disastrous retreat, which was followed by another wave of invading Parthians. So as they keep pushing against the Parthians, the Parthians fight back and seem to be often successful. And it swept all of the Roman opposition completely out of Palestine, or the land of Israel. Again, including Herod himself, who by that time had to flee to Alexandria and then eventually on to Rome. So start to get the picture here of how turbulent this place was and why there was so much friction between these two. Now, with Parthian collaboration, Jewish sovereignty was restored and Jerusalem was fortified with a Jewish garrison. So it seems that the Parthians were far more pro-Israel than certainly the Romans were and actually gave them some degree of autonomy and uh, the opportunity to, to reign and rule over themselves. But Herod, by this time, secured from Caesar Augustus the title the King of the Jews. All right. That's the title that Herod wanted. He wanted to be king over this region. And Augustus gives him that title, the king of the Jews. Uh, never a good thing, because, of course, that title is one that belongs to Jesus Christ alone. And when people take titles that are not theirs and particularly ones that apply to God, it never goes down too well for them. Uh, however, it wasn't for another three years, including, oh, sorry, it was not for three years, including a five month siege by Roman troops that the king was able to occupy his own capital city. So eventually Herod does get back, but it takes a long time, a three year siege uh, before he can actually get there. Now, Herod had thus gained the throne of this rebellious buffer state right between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. Now, at any time, his own subjects might conspire to bring Parthians to their aid, because obviously there was this kind of affiliation between the Parthians and the, the Jews. Now, Augustus, by this time, was also getting on in years. Rome, since the retirement of Tiberius, was without any experienced military commander. And again, pro-Parthian Armenia was uh, fermenting revolt against Rome as well. So there's real issues for Rome. In fact, that happened in just two years from that point. At the time of the birth of Jesus, Herod was old, he was unwell, and he was close to his final illness. And the time was ripe for another Parthian invasion this of this buffer provinces, the land of Israel particularly, uh, except for the fact that Parthia itself was racked by internal dissension. So they had their own issues internally. Um, Phraates IV was an unpopular and aging king. He'd once been disposed Oh, sorry, deposed. Uh, and it was not improbable that the Persian Magi were already involved in the political manoeuvring to choose a new king to sit on the throne of Parthia. So it's possible that the Magi might have taken advantage of the king's lack of popularity to further their own interest with the establishment of a new dynasty if they could find a king, a strong contender that would be able to take up the role for them. So given all of that, it's then at this point in history that this group of Parthian kingmakers, Persian Parthian kingmakers, enter Jerusalem. Now, bear in mind, these are now antagonists. These are ones that Herod is fearful of. And they come in, they come up to Herod, and they say, where is he that has been born the king of the Jews, the title that you've taken? You can see why Herod was troubled. Chuck Misler makes this comment. This is the Magi likely travelling in force with unimaginable oriental pomp and adequate cavalry escort to ensure their safe penetration of Roman territory certainly alarmed Herod and the entire populace of Jerusalem. Herod's reaction was understandably one of fear. 
when one considers again the background of the Roman Parthian rivalry that prevailed during his lifetime. Now, we don't get that on Christmas cards. This is a picture, though, painted by Giovanni, um, known as the Journey of the Magi. Now, you'll notice that there's not three of them. There's a whole bunch of uh, individuals there. You'll also notice that they're riding on horses and not camels. If you know anything about the Persians, you'll know that they love their horses. The whole idea of camels, again, was uh, just a, a misunderstanding of that scripture from, I believe it's Psalm 68 that I mentioned earlier, which speaks about derometries covering the land. It's nothing to do with this particular portion of scripture. Uh, another painting. Uh, this is Botticelli's picture of the adoration of the Magi. Again, notice the horses. Notice a lot of people. And then this one, which is really quite insightful, uh, this is a painting that goes back to around about 1460. And you see the Magi en route to visit Jesus. And you can see there's a huge company there. You see, we've lost this because tradition has blinded us to this. And yet, historically, there was a great understanding that when the Magi arrived, there weren't just the three kings... They were a whole group of these Persian Magi kingmakers from the Parthian Empire coming into Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And remember that some 600 years before this, Daniel had told them that the Messiah was coming and even given them a time frame in which to look for him. And that's given to us in Daniel chapter 9 as well. If we look at the map, just do you see where these things are? Nazareth is way up there, the north of Israel by the Sea of Galilee. And then you come down the south about 65 miles as the crow flies. But of course, for Mary, for Joseph, uh, they weren't traveling as the crow flies. They'd have had to go uh, through whichever roads and uh, passages were possible to pass on. Uh, it's typically been anything up to an 80 mile journey. Uh, Jerusalem at the bottom there and Bethlehem just about eight miles outside of Jerusalem itself. Let's get back to scripture and then we'll just tie the threads together. We read in Luke 2, verse 1, uh, sorry, verse 21, uh, when the eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child. So this is after Jesus has been born. According to the law, any Jewish males had to be circumcised on the eighth day. They're still in Bethlehem. Jesus has just been born. And we're told that they obviously they, they circumcised him and his name was called Jesus, which is the name, of course, that Mary was told to call him, uh, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him, notice, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Okay, really important points to mention here. So first of all, it's eight days. And then secondly, we have this uh, period of purification after which they take him up to Jerusalem to offer the, Jesus the act of dedication, offer a sacrifice as they were told to do. Luke tells us, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So this was the offering they had to bring. This is exactly what they did. They go to Jerusalem and they offer it. Now, let me just ask you a quick question. Where did Mary and Joseph live? Well, we know they lived in Nazareth. That was their home. That's where they traveled to or travel from down to Bethlehem. Why did they go to Bethlehem? Because there was a census. They had to go to their family home, which was in Bethlehem. But where did they live? Nazareth. So after they've been to Jerusalem, where would you expect them to go? Well, if we believe tradition, somehow we're supposed to believe they went back to Bethlehem and they stay there indefinitely. But of course, that's not what scripture says. Scripture makes it very clear in Luke chapter 2, verse 39. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city Nazareth. Very clear statement that Jesus, Mary, Joseph, they didn't stay in Bethlehem. After he's born, the time of purification, they go to the temple, they offer the sacrifices they're supposed to, they meet Simeon and Anna there, by the way, as well, which Luke tells us about. And then they go home. Of course they would. That's where they lived. Makes sense, doesn't it? So just to give you a summary of the order of events, Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem for the census. Jesus is born and a star appears. I'll come back to that. Shepherds visit and return with joy. After eight days, Jesus is circumcised. After 41 days, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to present Jesus to the Lord and offer sacrifices. Simeon and Anna glorify God and the family then returns home to Nazareth. And then it is sometime later 
that the Magi come seeking Jesus. When is it the star appears? The star seems to appear when Jesus is born. Where were the Magi at that point? Well, they were way off in the east, in Babylon or somewhere uh, further east than that, but certainly uh, at least in Babylon. Again, let's just look at the scripture we looked at briefly earlier. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod, of Judea, uh, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. Notice, they saw the star in the east, and then they set off on their journey. We have this idea of following the star. But at this point, they're not following the star. They simply have seen the star. They recognize it's the signal, the sign they've been looking for, and they set out on their journey. They've seen the star post or previously, and they come to worship Jesus. And of course, as we said, Jerusalem is all troubled as a result of this. And then they find uh, again where Jesus is going to be born is confirmed in Bethlehem of Judea as Micah has prophesied. And the statement is given again. This is Herod receiving this from the scribes that Jesus is going to rule my people Israel. Now you can imagine how Herod feels at this point. The Magi have turned up, these Parthian kingmakers stepping into his realm effectively, saying, where is the rightful king? And they go, he goes to the scribes and they come back and they read what, this verse that tells them about an individual who's going to be born, who is going to rule over Israel. That's a real rude awakening to Herod's delusions of grandeur. And we're told that when he had privily called the wise men, uh, inquired diligently at what time the star appeared. Now, of course, by this point, they've set out on their journey. Could have been anything up to two years. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Now, we've got a problem because we've already concluded that after the eight days and the 41 days, Mary and Joseph travel back to Nazareth. And yet Herod here is sending the Magi to Bethlehem where Jesus was no longer. So we have a problem. Of course, God anticipated this problem. And we read the next verse that when they had heard the king, they departed and lo, or whoa, watch out. The star which they had seen in the east. Now, I haven't seen it up until this point now. From the original time they saw it, they now see it again. They see the star and it went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And we're told that when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. You see, Herod says, leave the palace, turn left, go eight miles down the road to Bethlehem. They step out of the palace, they look up and they see the star, which leads them right up to Nazareth, where the young child was. Again, all of this is uh, so missed and uh, messed up by tradition. Why would God send the star? Well, simply because uh, Herod had given them directions, but those directions were to the wrong location. And so they needed the star at this point to give them the correct directions so that they could go to Nazareth and not to Bethlehem. So I'm sorry if it upsets you and your Christmas cards, all those kind of things, but there is no such thing as the star of Bethlehem. There is no star that appeared over Bethlehem because the star appeared when they were in the east. They saw that and they come out from Herod in Jerusalem and it leads them to Nazareth. So I'm sorry, but this is just scripture. Um, Hope it doesn't ruin your Christmas too much and, uh, you know, all those cars. All these things, you know, the stable we talked about last week, no mention of that in scripture, the star, the camels, the three kings. Um, yeah, sadly though, so many people have got caught up in tradition that it is even affected modern translations of the Bible where sadly people translate things according to their perception of tradition rather than relying on the word of God. Let me just give you this example. One modern translation of the Bible, Matthew 2, verse 7 through 11. In verse 9, it says, After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. Well, firstly, it wasn't really an interview, but we could let that slip. But notice what it says. It says this is what people believe or read today as a Bible. It's not a Bible. It's a commentary. Somebody's giving you their translation of what they think the Bible says. And a lot of modern translations of that. So we need to be extremely careful with modern translations. Sometimes they get it right and it can be very helpful. But if they get it wrong, it can be extremely misleading. Because this states that the star they see in these guided them to Bethlehem. No, it didn't. 
The verse in the King James translates it this way. It says, when they had heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. No mention of Bethlehem. You see, Bethlehem has been inserted by the translators because they think that's where it went because tradition has led us to believe that. And this is just one of many, many incidents I can share with you where modern translations insert things in the text where they think this is what it should say rather than allowing the text to speak for itself. So just be aware. So there's a number of issues like that with modern translations. Again, they're more uh, a commentary. And as such, if you treat them as a commentary, they can be helpful because you don't take them as gospel, as it were. Um, but we need to always study with a good translation rather than a um uh, somebody's opinion of what they uh, say so well why is it important well because they said the major never went to bethlehem following the birth of jesus as i said eight days circumcised 41 days go to the temple then return home to nazareth when they performed all things that means that by the time they get the visit from the magi with the magi give them the the gold the frankincense and the myrrh they then have a reasonable amount of resource of wealth mary and joseph because of the gold when they go to the temple to offer uh, offer sacrifices, they only offer turtle doves because they couldn't afford a lamb. And this is what the law says they should do. If they could afford a lamb, they were to. Well, had the Magi have visited before they travelled to Nazareth, uh, before they travelled to Jerusalem for the sacrifice, they'd have had the gold. They could have easily afforded a lamb, which means they'd have broken the law. So suddenly you actually put an error, a contradiction uh, and a problem into the text by trying to uh, insert what people think rather than what actually scripture says. So let's move on. So again, they come out, they see the star. Suddenly they're excited by this. They hadn't seen it until now, but there it was. And no wonder they're excited. And then when, when they come into the house, notice clear statement there Matthew 2 this isn't into a, a, a stable because there was no stable this isn't into the lambing tower this is into a house this is where they lived up in Nazareth they saw the young child no longer a baby up to, anything up to two years old by this point with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him and when they had opened their treasures they presented unto him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh okay <clears throat> the gifts not necessarily all are mentioned here um but the gold speaks of his deity frankincense the priesthood again mixed into the showbread by the priests uh, and then the myrrh when crushed it becomes an ointment for burial so all of these things prophetic speaking of jesus and those three things speak of the prophet priest and king those offices that jesus holds and of course, we're told that the Magi, that they were warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. They departed into their own country another way. So the kingdom in Israel had seemingly come to an end in 587 BC. So way back now, this is at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. He's taken captive to Babylon. The crown was literally taken captive to Babylon, taken away. There was no king of Israel from, from that point. God had prophesied through Hosea that Israel would abide many days without a king. Even though upon returning from exile, there were those of the royal line, none assumed the crown or title king of Israel. But then, at the time appointed, the crown was brought back by these Persian kingmakers, the Magi, and given to the son of David, and he shall reign forevermore. Luke Chapter 1, verse 26 to 33. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. See, the throne of David is a nationalistic Jewish throne. It demands the reestablishment of the royal throne of David. That means a Jewish king, a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount. And as we sit here this morning... We are looking forward and waiting for these things to start to come to pass. The Temple Institute have already got most of the artifacts for the temple already made, already built. Uh, the menorah is constructed. The table of showbread is already built. The incense altar, all of these things they've got. The priestly robes are ready. They're just waiting for the right moment when that temple will be rebuilt. Of course, that will lead on to all the scene that we have uh, given to us in the book of Revelation of all that is coming. But ultimately, Jesus will return and he will establish again the throne of David. That statement in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, that prophecy, notice again, it speaks of the one who is to be ruler in Israel. 
This is the statement. Of course, Jesus will rule over the whole earth, but he will also be the king of Israel. You know, in scripture, we, we sometimes refer to and speak of King Jesus, but Jesus is referred to as king of saints just one time. Uh, and that's in Revelation 15, verse three. Three times Jesus is referred to as the king of kings. Six times Jesus is referred to as the king of Israel. And 18 times he's referred to as the king of the Jews and another four times thy king. So we have a total of 28 times the references of Jesus being a king all have to do with national Israel. Of course, Israel were confused with the idea of Isaiah 53, this idea that the was one who was coming and suffering. And hence the question that Philip's asked on the by the Ethiopian eunuch. Who is the one who was talking about? Well, for the Jews, they were waiting for a deliverer. They were waiting for one to come and set them free from the tyranny of Rome. But they didn't understand that it wasn't two messiahs, but it was two comings. You see, Jesus had to come first as a suffering servant, and then he'll come to rule with a rod of iron. You see, first, Jesus comes as the Lamb of God. The shepherds came first to acknowledge that he is the Lamb of God without blemish. Then, sometime later, the Magi come to acknowledge that he is the King of Israel. Okay, so when you think of Christmas, you should think, firstly, sacrificial lambs. That's what we were talking about last week. That has been fulfilled. Then you need to think King of the Jews, and that will be so soon fulfilled. God bless you. Let's pray our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity this morning to review these things. Well, maybe to be challenged, Lord, against the, the backdrop of tradition that we've grown up with. But Lord, we thank you for the completeness of your word. We thank you that all of these things are there by deliberate supernatural design from before the foundation of the world, that you were the lamb to be slain, but you're also the king who will rule and reign for eternity. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the King of Israel. We thank you for these things this morning. Lord, may we continue to grow in grace and in knowledge and grow in our love for our King. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.